0: I wonder if you've ever been on a bushwalk and uh, experienced really bad weather. Uh, If you've been on a bushwalk in Tasmania, the chances are, yes, that has indeed happened to you. It started out sunny, but then rain, snow, you get to the top of whichever one of our peaks you were trying to uh, summit, and there's no view... I still need to go back to the top of Mount Jerusalem uh, in the walls of Jerusalem National Park and actually see, I'm told, the wonderful view that you can get from the top. And uh, anyway, as you're experiencing these uh, circumstances, the wet tent, the wet shoes, the, the, the horrible uh, feeling of just being unable to get properly warm and dry, no doubt at some point as you're trudging along in the bush, you've thought to yourself, how good's the warm fire going to be? How good's the mulled wine or the hot cider going to be? How good's the freshly cooked food, hopefully deep fried, going to be? Things that in the midst of your sad and sorry state might start to give you hope and a little bit of motivation as you continue to trudge along in your soggy, boots with your frozen fingers and though your mind may move to the thoughts of deep fried food mulled wine and warm fires and that might feel good for a moment it of course doesn't change your reality does it back in the real world you're still there wet cold and miserable and it's not really very nice at all. It's a trivial uh, analogy compared to what's going on for the people of God in Lamentations, but I think that's kind of what we have uh, here as we get to chapter 4. Back in chapter 3, we have that high point where in the midst of uh, the the people's suffering, they, they remember what is good. They remember who God is. Let me remind you. From verse 21 of chapter 3, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I said to myself, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who, who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of of the Lord. The the writer has remembered that God has not changed, that his nature is still the same, that he is still a God of love, that he is still a God who brings salvation, and yet still in this moment, in five hundred and eighty seven BC, after being sieged by the Babylonians and now experiencing the destruction of Jerusalem, life is still difficult and hard and terrible. We heard about how terrible it was, as Chris read to us. And if you weren't here last week, we talked more about holding these two things together, Uh, hope in the midst of despair. And uh, let me encourage you to go back and listen to that again on the website if you missed it. But for now, we're back in the despair and the devastation. And verses 1 to 10, if you've got your Bible open there, It really chronicles it, doesn't it? As one scholar uh, with the surname Berlin reflects on this passage, he says, the picture is of the abrogation of all that was normal in Judean society, a drastic reversal of fortunes socially and physically caused by the ravages of wartime famine. All human dignity has been lost. And we see that, don't we? We heard it when Chris read The city has lost its wealth in verses 1 and 2. The children are left to starve, verses 3 and 4. The rich and the well-to-do are now scrapping and scavenging, verses 5 and 6. In fact, all the people experiencing famine and starvation, verses 7 to 9. And of course, the horrible words in verse 10. The pit of total despair and desperation. Imagine what it must have been like that compassionate women, verse 10, have cooked their own children who've become their food. This is a bad place that's hard to imagine. The devastation that has come upon them. God is faithful. God is good. God is love. And yet, here they are. And it's terrible, and it's hard, and it's difficult. And I think as you uh, heard it read and as you look over this chapter, you see that part of the devastation and the sadness, circumstances notwithstanding, is that they had the wrong expectations. You see, the people of God thought that they were invincible. They thought that nothing bad could ever happen to them because of who they were we see that expressed in verse 12 it's expressed kind of metaphorically about what others thought but it's I think a way of the the writer expressing kind of the belief that the people had the kings of the earth did not believe nor any peoples of the world that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem Jerusalem was a strong and a proud city the people there of Jerusalem and Judah they had come to believe that no one Would ever be able to take god's city god lived there in the temple after all why would he let infidels and pagans into his home they were safe and of course as we see time and time again that was the wrong view to have because they they took for granted these things instead of living up to their responsibilities under the covenant that God had made with them they just took it for granted and they didn't do the sorts of things God wanted for them like care for the poor and the widow and the orphan they became selfish and self-righteous and they got warned throughout the Old Testament again and again and again and again and again you need to change your ways you're meant to live in God's city and reflect what God is like. And yet you're just as bad as all the other nations. And Jeremiah in particular, who writes right before this happens, he had warned them and we've heard a few of his warnings. Let me, let's hear another one today. He warns them in chapter 7 of his uh, book. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, You who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. And then he goes on to chronicle in more detail some of the sort of specific reforms and changes that they were required. And then in verse 13, we pick it up again, he says... While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, all these bad things, all these wrong things, all these things that were displeasing to God, I spoke to you again and again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, which was the capital of the northern uh, tribes... I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Just as the northern tribes of Israel had faced exile and banishment, so will you. And Lamentations is the story of that punishment of what it's like when the wrath of God is poured out. The writer ex- describes it, doesn't it, in verse 11 of our chapter today. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath, he has poured out his fierce anger, he has kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. They'd been warned. And warned and warned, and they had not listened. And this is in part because their leaders had failed them. Verse 13 This happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. And he goes on to say, And now they, those people have been judged. Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They are so defiled with blood. The Lord himself, verse 16, has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honour, the elders no favour. These people, these prophets and priests, the king, they had a responsibility to lead the people in uh, worship of God, in spirit and truth, and they didn't. They ignored God's word. They live for themselves. And so God's people face judgment. God's leaders face their own specific judgment. And I think what we see here is the importance of leadership. The failure of these leaders to keep people faithful to God's word and his covenant meant that the people of God ended up finding themselves under God's judgment. Who leads us matters greatly. And false leaders with false teaching that encourage rather than rebuke sin is a one-way ticket to judgment. There's plenty of people out there call themselves Christian leaders but they fail to call out sin they fail to lead people into the way of Christ they encourage and bless sin and it's no small matter who leads us matters greatly and we must hold our leaders to account you must hold me to account. It's no good sitting here today, listening to me pontificate from this uh, lectern, and just taking it as read. My authority only extends as far as it is faithful to the word from which I am preaching. We have an obligation together to sit under God's word, to thrash it out together and I hope every now and again you come up to me and you say hey Chris I'm not quite sure about that maybe you not maybe maybe you got it wrong and maybe I do get it wrong sometimes we must hold our leaders to account we must hold on not to leadership but to God and his truth revealed in his word because otherwise we're not going to be leading ourselves under God's rule and reign so we've seen the devastation we've seen the judgment on the leadership for their sin and the importance of leadership getting it right now the writer goes on and he experiences the the loss of hope that was experienced by the people as the Babylonians siege the city from verses 17 to 20. And he starts off verse 17 our eyes failed looking in vain for help from our towers we watched for a nation that could not save us we sort of know from other parts of scriptures that the king of uh, judah was looking to egypt for help he wanted uh, that big nation to save him from the big other scary nation that was invading him but they never came I was recently watching uh, an old movie, Courage Under Fire, has anyone anyone seen it, Meg Ryan? Um, uh, And uh, there's a a scene that kind of gets played several times in the movie because we're trying to figure out what actually happened. I don't want to go into the details of the movie, you should watch it, it's pretty good. But there's a scene where the uh, medical helicopter crash lands and uh, they have to spend a night in enemy territory. And as they're sort of fighting off the enemy, the, things are getting pretty desperate. And then all of a sudden, the next morning, over the crest of the hill, comes the attack helicopters, which brings them great salvation. They get rescued. And I think that's kind of what we have here. It's like the, the, the people of God, were, they were looking and hoping, maybe Egypt are going to appear and we're going to be saved and this siege is going to be over. But it never happened. They were hoping in the wrong thing for their salvation and once they were attacked there was no way to escape not in the city not in the surrounding hills he talks about that in verses 18 and 19. people stalked us at every step we could not walk in our streets our end was near our days were numbered our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky they chased us over the mountain and lay in wait for us in the desert. and ultimately not even their king was spared, the Lord's anointed, verse 20. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. They hoped maybe Egypt could save them. They hoped maybe their king could save them. Constantly putting their hope in people and men and constantly failing because they didn't put their hope in God. If you're interested to know what happened to the king, you can read Jeremiah 39 verses 5 and 7 or 2 Kings 25 verses 5 and 7, uh, where it talks about how he was captured and taken away. And to God's people, that would have been a shocking thing indeed. The complete destruction of Jerusalem, unexpected. They, we're in God's home, in God's city. God lives with us. And now that's gone. We have God's king. He's made promises to David about a, a line of kings that will never end. And now he's captured. We'll be fine. But they're not. And they failed to to trust God rather than all the different things that he had given them. And so their false hopes are gone, their people and their wealth is gone, their city is gone, the temple is gone. It's truly the bottom of the barrel. And it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that there's no hope to be found in false promises. It can be so easy to make the same mistake and to put our hope in the wrong people or the wrong locations. How easy it is to think that past success will get us through or that our plans and our strategy and a bit of hard work will get us through or that if the right political party or the right leader takes control we'll we'll, we'll be okay. Or if we just give people enough education, then everything will be good. Or if we have enough money and enough security, or if our family just love each other and we have a good legacy to leave behind. It can be so easy to shift our hope from God to all these, not bad, secondary things, but bad when they become primary things. We need instead to put our hope in God through Jesus who gives us life. Well, the uh, chapter finishes off with a note of hope. It's a pretty minor note of hope, it must be said, but nonetheless, it is a note of hope. He says, verse 22, Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. Those who God has used to bring his judgment will face judgment for what they have done, for the excesses of the way they have brought about the destruction of Jerusalem. And for Israel, uh, for Judah, their punishment will end. The exile will not be prolonged. It will not be un- go unnecessarily long. Probably a better way of actually phrasing that uh, first part of verse 22 is uh, how uh, the ESV puts it. The punishment of your iniqu- iniquity, O Zion, is accomplished. Literally, it is finished. God's punishment is done and the exile which you are now uh, beginning to experience, it will end, it will not be prolonged. Christopher Wright says, hopeful certainly, but oh how slender, a single penultimate line out of the 44 lines in the chapter, but as always in the Bible, the power of hope lies not in the quantity of the rhetoric that expresses it, but in the character of the one in whom the hope is placed. That is why the voices who speak the very next line in verse chapter 5, which we'll come to next week, address God directly and continue to do so to the end of the book. We know how this story ends. God's people are exiled and God does promise to do a new thing. He promises to bring his people back and to put his king on the throne and that king we know is Jesus who rules his people eternally all who put their faith and trust in him as we continue to reflect on this book of the Bible today I think we have a reminder A reminder to each of us to make sure we keep our eyes on him. That we make sure he is the source of our hope. Not any of those other good things he might give us. And that each of us call each other back to God by his word. Holding one another accountable to it and asking god by his spirit to shape us all to be more like jesus because he has come and he has won a victory over sin which means we will find ourselves not because of our good deeds but because of his good works spending eternity not under the judgment of god but by his grace in eternity forevermore amen